Right, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to 1 Chronicles 21. We've been hanging out in this uh, series called I Am David. And the whole idea behind it is that when we look at the life of David, we see someone that God used mightily in spite of the deep flaws that he had. It says that he was a man who had a heart after God's own heart, even though we read about many areas where he completely blew it in life. And really, there's probably no way that we relate to David more uh, than when we look at his vulnerabilities. And that's why this week we're looking at uh, the vulnerability, saying, I am vulnerable. And David was someone who, like all of us, had vulnerabilities inside of his life. And what's happened is, He's reached the end of his life. He's been reigning as king for something like around 40 years at this point. It's been beyond what anybody could have ever expected to happen under his uh, rule and his authority. The nations uh, have, I mean, Israel's really become the prominent power in the area. Everybody wants to be like Israel. David's just been unbelievable in the field of battle. He's beaten back all their enemies. They've actually expanded their territory. He reigns and rules unopposed. He has a huge family. Uh, Things are prosperous in the nation. Everybody loves David. It's a good place that he's at in life. But what happens a lot of times is that when things are going really well for you, it can be easy to forget about God. Now, when things are going terrible in your life, uh, it's as like, oh God, I need you to help me, please Jesus. And you're, you're looking through your Bible and you're praying and you're doing everything you can, you're going to church. It's like they say, there's no atheist in a foxhole. When things are going rough, you're crying out to God. But when things start going really well, it's easy to forget about God because you're just doing your thing and you look at yourself and you're like, man, I'm doing great. Let's just keep this thing rolling. But what happens again and again in the history of Israel is God comes, he miraculously saves them because they've been crying out to him and then life is good, they forget about God and then because they forgot about God who's been the one that provided everything for them, enemies come again and start to beat up on them, life is bad, they cry out to God, God comes, rescues them again, life is good, forget about God. It's a cycle that continues to repeat over and over in the course of Israel. And you look at it and you say, how can these people be so dumb? Like, honestly, what is wrong with you idiots? Haven't you seen how God keeps saving you and making everything better again and then you just forget about him? It's like, well, I remember the day when I was reading that and thinking, these people are stupid. Like, Lord, could you have picked a dumber group of people ever? And then he's like, you know, you're a lot like them. I'm like, what are you talking about, God? What have I ever forgotten about you? He's like, how about now? I'm like, ooh, Lord, I'm so sorry. But that's kind of the cycle of life. It's easy when things are going well. It really reveals what's going on inside of your heart. And this is what's happening to David. Things are going really well for him. And so he starts forgetting about his dependence and his connection to God and starts really just doing life on his own. And it says this in 1 Chronicles 21.1, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now, this word stood against, what it means is getting between you and your goal and resisting you so that you can't achieve the goal that you have. It's used a lot in military senses of there's an army that's coming and their objective is to capture a city. But what happens is another army will come and they will stand against them. They will get between the advancing army and the city to do everything they can to resist them from achieving their goal. You guys have probably had moments like that in life. If you had siblings growing up like I did, there were many moments of where you stood against someone. You do everything you can to resist them. And what's happened in this is 
Satan's trying to keep them from following God's plans and his will for their lives. That's what God's standing against, what is, uh, Satan is standing against. So I'm using every word I can think of and everyone was wrong. But what, what's happened here is there's a plan and a purpose and a destiny that God has called Israel to. So Satan comes and he stands against that. He's trying to do everything that he can to keep the nation of Israel from following God's calling and his plan for that nation. And the way that he does that is by attacking David. He knows if I can take down the leader of this nation, that it will mean destruction for the rest of the people. And the same thing happens to us today. You know, God's calling and his plan wasn't for one ancient nation. There's a calling and a plan that God has for every one of us. There's a destiny that he's called every single one of us into. And Satan will come and he will stand against you in that. He will do everything that he can to keep you from living out God's call on your life. Because when you live out God's calling on your life, you live with peace. You live with joy. It's not just good for you, it's good for your family, it's good for your city, it's good for all the world when you follow out God's calling on your life. So Satan does everything that he can to get between you and God's calling on your life and resist you and keep that from becoming the reality of your life. And the way that Satan does this for David, and you kind of think, what, really? He's trying to get him to take a census, and this is Satan's big grand plan for how to bring destruction on all of Israel? Doesn't that seem kind of weird? I mean, was God against centralized government or something? Why doesn't he want a census to occur? But what's happening here is when it says that he incited David, the word incited there means that it's to lead someone away through seduction, deception, or persuasion. Satan isn't obvious about the things that he's doing. He doesn't come up to you. We know what Satan's about. The Bible says that he came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what he wants to do in your life. But that doesn't make a great slogan. If he comes to you and he knocks on your door and says, Hey, I'm Satan. I want to steal, kill, and destroy. Can I come in? You're like, No, you can't come in. So what he does is he has to be sneaky about it. He can't tell you what he's trying to do. He has to persuade you through deception. He has to seduce you. He has to do something that doesn't seem like it's that bad in order to get you uh, to come and to stand against you to keep you from living out God's plan for your life. So what happens is he comes to your door and he's like the vacuum people. They knock on your door and you open it. And like, hey, we just have a free gift for you. You're like, oh gosh, not this again. Yeah, just, just let me come in. I want to do a free carpet cleaning in any room of your choice. Yeah. Completely free, no strings attached. You're like, all right, come on in. That sounds great. This is my lucky day. And then five hours later, you're still trying to get them out of your house. Like, do I have to call the cops? What do I have to do to get you out of my home? But they will not leave until they get their way with you. How many of you guys have bought something just to get someone out of your house? I've done it. It's like, I don't care. Take, it's write any check. Just please leave and never come back. And this is what Satan does. He, he tricks you. He seduces you. He deceives you into something that doesn't seem like it's that bad in order to bring complete destruction in your life. And so with David, Satan comes to him and he's like, wow, I've been watching you. I've got to say, I'm pretty impressed. Remember when you were just a little sheep herding boy and nobody thought you'd ever do anything and now look at you you're the king of all of israel you're the most popular king they've ever had that is amazing look at your army you're so strong you're good looking everybody loves you i i just can't believe all of the things that you have done with your life 
And I wonder what else you could do. See, what Satan does is he comes to me and says, you, 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 you've done all of these things. Look what you have done. What else can you do? See, the truth is, there was nothing that special about David. But there was something pretty special about the God who lived in David and the God that David was obedient to. But what happens is Satan comes and he recognizes the reason David is so successful and the reason he's been able to lead the nation of Israel into God's plans and purposes for them is because of the fact that he has been so desperately connected to God. He's come to God for everything. And because of that relational connection to God, that utter dependence completely and fully upon God's leading and his empowerment, his protection and his provision, David has been able to do impossible things. So what Satan wants to do is to get David to stop looking at what it is that he can do through God and what happens when he relies upon God in life and to start thinking about what he can do to disconnect himself from God and think about, look what I have done. I bet there's a lot more stuff that I can do. And so that's why David decides I'm going to take a census. Because I want to be able to marvel in the glory of my nation. I want to know just how incredible I really am. I want to know how strong my army really is. For security purposes, that I know kind of what we can go up against. And also, for offensive purposes, I want to know how else I can go around and beat up on people and expand this nation I want to see just how awesome I am. I want to see just what I can do out of my own strength and my own abilities. See, what's happened is Satan has tempted David with the sin of self-reliance. It doesn't seem like it's that bad of a thing. But it brings complete destruction for the nation of Israel. Because what happens is when you rely on God, there's nothing that's impossible for you. But when you rely on yourself, there's literally nothing that is possible for you. If you want to completely cut the legs off from what you're doing, if you want to be completely helpless and defenseless and not be able to live out your purpose in life, then start trying to do everything God's called you to do out of your own ability. Or better yet, completely cut God out of the picture. Don't worry about what he wants you to do. Just think about what you want to do and then go out there and try to do it. So here's what happens. He tells Joab, his, the commander of his army, his right-hand man, he says, I want you to go out and I want you to take this census so that we know just how awesome I am. And in 1 Chronicles then, uh, 21, 2-3, says, So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as there are. Are they not, my lord the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? See, Joab recognizes what David's doing. He knows the sin of self-reliance, and he knows what it's going to lead to for David personally, and he knows what it's going to lead to for the nation as a whole as they begin to abandon God and that intimate connection they had with him and begin to pursue their own desires and interests of their own abilities and powers. And so Joab says, look, David, what does it matter how many people you have? Why is that even important? The amount of men that you have, your military strength and might has never been a factor in anything you've ever done before. When you were just a boy and you went up against a Goliath, was it because you were so awesome and you were so strong that you beat him? No. 
It was because you were a desperate reliance upon God and you followed out his commands for you with faith and you moved forward in obedience to everything that God called you to do. And God supernaturally empowered you and you were victorious. When you were out in the desert and you were being hunted down and pursued by the king and his armies, was it your military strength or your brains or whatever else that got you out of that situation? No, it was God who did that. Your numbers, your military strength, your might, your own abilities have never been a factor in what God has done in you. So then why is it now that you would cut yourself off from your source and your strength, from your protection in life, just so that you know what you can do? But David doesn't listen to Joab. He sends him out to take the census anyway, and it says that Joab hated it so much that the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. And it wasn't just abhorrent to Joab, it upset God too. It says, But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel, not to destroy them, but to bring them back to a place of health. Because God knows what the sin of self-reliance will always lead you to. The first sin we ever read about in the Bible, the great fall, Adam and Eve, what was their sin? Self-reliance. They thought, we don't need God to tell us what's right and wrong anymore. We don't need to follow what it is that he's called us to. I got this covered. I can do this. I can be like God. And look at the destruction that it's brought on the world. When we look at Abraham, God had incredible promises for him. He says, I'm going to make you the father of, of nations. You're going to have more descendants than there are stars in the sky. All he had to do was rely on God to bring that about. But what does he do? He says, I can't rely on God anymore. This is taking way too long, so I'm going to go make this happen myself. And complete destruction came from that. Time and time again, we look through the Bible, look at Noah's day. It says that they have completely abandoned God. They're not following his plans for their life. They're not connected to him in any way. And the earth is filled with violence and wickedness. Every time that we disconnect ourselves from God because we think that we can rely on ourselves, it brings absolute disaster and destruction. You see, God doesn't want us to rely on him because he's so emotionally needy that he wants us to have this sick, codependent relationship with him. He wants to rely on us to rely on him because he knows it's the only way that we can live out life with peace, joy, contentment, purpose, love. It's the only way that we can possibly live the life that we've been called to is when we are desperately reliant upon God for everything. It's not that God needs to be needed so desperately. It's that we need him so desperately. It goes really well for us when we submit ourselves to God and his plans for our lives. You know, one of the great things about the relationship that we've been called to have with God, it says that we are his children. You know, I love that God is my dad. There's incredible benefits, the blessings, the provision that he gives me because he's my dad. There is nothing that I wouldn't give my kids that they need. My kids don't know it, but they're pretty blessed. But what happens is we end up being like kids. That's the problem with being children is we act like children sometimes. How many times have your kids asked you for something that there's like, this is going to be terrible for you. What, you want a BB gun? You're two. There is no way that this is going to work out well for you. And so what we do sometimes is like we get mad. We think, you know what, I can go out, I can do this. Remember ever running away from home? I did that once. I packed two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, thought, I'm done with this. I don't need my parents. I can go out and take care of myself. I just read the book, My Side of the Mountain. So I thought, I'm going to go out there and live off the land. <laughs> Told my parents I was leaving. They're like, all right. <laughs> and they let me go. I stayed within sight of the house because I was too scared to go any farther. 
But I went out there, and after I ate both my peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and I built a fort that fell over on me. About an hour later, decided it was time to go home. I wasn't, my self-reliance wasn't as good as I thought it was. And this is what happens to us. Is we think that we can go out there, we can be self-reliant, that we're going to be okay, but we're like that, you know, the five-year-old that's sick of their parents' rules and regulations, like you can't run around with scissors. And so you just take off, like, I'm out of here, I'm going to do my own thing, I don't need you guys. But that's what happens. Sometimes we act like kids. What any good parent does is they bring correction to their kids because they love them and they care enough about them to want them to be healthy and to have a good life. And for David, since his self-reliance is based on the size of his military strength, what God says is, okay, if this is what you think is going to get you through in life, then I'm going to take that away from you. You have been pretty successful in military endeavors, but it's been because of me. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take away the thing that you're putting all of your trust in so that you will see that that isn't something that can be trusted in in the first place. So what God does is he says, here's what's going to happen. Because of this sin, you get to choose your punishment. Have you ever had that happen where your parents say you get to choose your punishment? There's no good options. <laughs> what about having a hug and saying I'll never do it again? <laughs> okay, I choose ice cream sundae punishment. And so God says, here's what's going to happen. You get to choose. You'll either go through three years of famine, or you'll have three months of having your enemies chase you and being subject to them, or you'll go through three days of having pestilence go over the land. And David says that he was greatly distressed as he had to make this choice because now he's been living the entire 40 years, the entire nation is living for 40 years with God's hand of protection, provision, and blessing over them, just supernaturally blessing this nation. And God says, you guys think that this is because of you? Well, let's see what happens when I remove my supernatural favor of blessing and protection over your life. You guys think that you're pretty strong? Well, let's see what happens when I remove my hand and every enemy comes in here and chases you around. You think that you guys have this land flowing with milk and honey because you're so awesome? What happens when I remove my supernatural blessing? And so David, as he's thinking about this, he's pretty smart. He says the right thing. He says, let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So David chooses, he says, I'm going to allow myself to fall at the mercy of God. If I choose to allow myself to be put at the mercy of my enemies, I know how that's going to turn out for me. Our enemies are not merciful. They will completely and utterly destroy me. But if I entrust myself to God's great mercy, I know there will be forgiveness and I know that he will sustain me. And so that's what he does. He makes the choice and so God sends an angel to destroy Jerusalem, it says. The very capital city, the symbol of the power of David's reign and rule. And it says that as the angel gets here, is about to destroy the city, God says, stop. It is enough. God doesn't even do the thing that he said that he was going to do. What's happened is God said there'd be three days of destruction in Israel. On the first day, God ended up stopping it. Because God is that merciful. David understood something about God. You can trust yourself to him. That when discipline or correction comes to you from God, it's not something you have to run from or hide from. It's something that you can embrace because you know God's heart. And you know that his will is to be merciful and to be gracious towards you, even in a moment of correction in your life. And so David, what happens is he's, 
he's sitting there and he's, they're in sackcloth and they're praying and they're fasting and saying, God, would you please forgive us? And God opens up his eyes to see what's happening in spiritual and he sees the angel standing there with a drawn sword next to Jerusalem. And that's the moment where he cries out for forgiveness. And he's like, God, this isn't the fault of the people. This was on me, so let this punishment rest on me. And God stops everything. And David buys that spot, the plot of ground, where he saw God's mercy demonstrated. He builds an altar there. He makes an offering to God. And it actually becomes the place of national worship. They end up building the temple there. His son Solomon builds the temple where they all go and worship. Because this is a spot where they as a nation saw firsthand how merciful and how gracious God is. Even when we've sinned, even when we've blown it, even when we deserve really bad things, God is still merciful and he is gracious to us. And that became the national spot of where they knew and they remembered just how good God had been to them. See, David was vulnerable to sin. He was vulnerable to temptation. And we are all vulnerable too. The idea that a lot of people get is, I'll become a mature Christian someday, and then I won't ever have to deal with sin and temptation anymore. Man, that's crazy. If you ever think that you're beyond temptation, you are committing the sin of pride. Uh, there is no place where you get, I've heard the saying, new levels, new devils, and it's kind of true. As soon as you really are able to see victory in one area of temptation, there's another one that you see, okay, now I've got to work on this one. And even when things are going really well, then the temptation comes in for self-reliance, like we saw with David. There is always going to be temptation in your life. Even Jesus was tempted. Yeah. And if yeah. Jesus was tempted and vulnerable, then you better believe that all of us are too. Yeah. So if we want to walk into the destiny that we've been called to, knowing that Satan stands against us to keep us from that, and that he is trying to entice us to sin and to go into temptation, then this is what we need to do. Is Number one, we need to recognize the attack. I had this really bad dog growing up. And it would always go up to the table or to a counter where there's food, and it'd always eat the food and run away. And this is the way it did it. We began to recognize a pattern. First, there'd be food out there. Okay, that's the first clue that something might happen with the dog. And then you'd see the dog just kind of like real slow, like slink over towards it. It'd sit there with its back to the food looking at you, just all smiles, like nothing's happening. And then as soon as I thought you weren't looking, like stand up on its back legs, like, oh. And they'd get it in its mouth, and they'd just hold it in its mouth. It wouldn't chew it right there. It was trying to hide the food. There'd be some, and then it'd kind of go off to another room and eat it on its own. So we began to recognize when this dog was up to something. And as soon as we saw it go over there and slink towards the food and sit with its back to it and smile all goofy at us, we knew, okay, we've got to go move that food or else that dog's going to eat it. You have to know when it is that Satan is tempting you. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, it says, uh, it's talking about why we have to be uh, constantly vi on vigil for this. Uh, so that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. We have to know what these schemes are. He has them. Satan is standing against you. He wants to keep you from walking into God's destiny and his plan for you. He knows the areas where you're vulnerable. He even has a method that he will use to tempt you and to entice you to sin. If he knows your vulnerabilities and he knows the method to tempt you, then you had better know it too. Yeah. What are those temptations for you? What are the ones that are very appealing to you? What are the sins that you continue to fall into? You know them. Satan certainly knows them. And as long as you continue to fall into those sins, he's going to keep putting the pressure on you for that sin because he knows there's an area of vulnerability inside of your life. Yeah. 
You need to recognize the attack so that when you see it coming, you know what to do to stop the attack from being successful. Number two, you need to listen to the counsel of others. There will be times where you don't recognize the attack or you don't care about it. You just want to go and sin. In Proverbs 15.22, it says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. What it's saying is that there is wisdom in the multitude of others. And this is what Joab does. He says, you have fallen for the bait of Satan. You've been tempted. You've been enticed. And so he's trying to say, look, this is something that you shouldn't do. This is going to lead to destruction. Joab does what any good friend should do. And if you want to have that secondary support system where even if you fall into temptation and sin, you have someone that can come and bail you out, you need to have a Joab in your life. You need to be surrounded with other godly people, other godly friends or mentors, accountability partners in your life that listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit so that even when you choose not to or something is keeping you from hearing the voice of God in your life, they can come to you and help save you from falling into the temptation and the sin. You are going to sin in life. That is something that is going to happen. Um, every day, most likely. But here's what happens is that when you don't have a plan, when you don't recognize the attack, and when you don't listen to your friends that are around you, and you end up sinning, you need to repent. Yeah. You see, David sinned greatly. Look at the story of David and Bathsheba, and what he did to Uriah, the adultery, murder, lies, I mean, all kinds of terrible things. David was someone who had some huge sins in his life, but yet he was someone that was after God's own heart, and he was someone that God used greatly. And the reason for that is because every time David did mess up, he came back and he repented. First Chronicles 21, 7, 8 says, um, the David says, I have sinned greatly and I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. You see, David confessed the sin. He said, God, I did this. He doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't try to pretend like it never happened. He takes ownership of the sin that he committed. And he says, and God, I know that I deserve a penalty for this. I know that I des like, the destruction that you're bringing on me, I completely deserve that for what I did. But what I'm doing, God, is I'm asking you for mercy. I'm asking you to forgive me. And I'm not just asking you to forgive me. It says, I want you to remove my iniquity. I want you to make it like it never even happened. Because so what happens is we have this idea in our culture is forgive, but don't forget. You guys have heard that before. Why do we not want to forget? Because we don't want to make ourselves vulnerable again. We can forgive them, but we say, I'm going to not allow myself to be influenced by you or to be close to you again, so that way you can never hurt me again. But what David does is he confesses the sin and says, God, I sinned against you, I blew it, I deserve a penalty for this, but I'm asking you to forgive me, and not just forgive me, but I'm asking you to remove that sin from me so it's like it never happened, so that way our relationship can be restored. Because when you don't forget the sin that someone's committed against you, that relationship is never restored. It's always strained. It's always awkward. You'll never have that closeness again. And this is what God does. When you come before him and you confess that sin, and you say, God, I know that I deserve a penalty for this, but I'm asking you to forgive me, and I'm asking you to remove the sin from me like it never happened. That's exactly what God does. It says that he remembers your sin no more. He separates it from his memory as far as the east is from the west. It's like you've never sinned. It's the first sin. It's never happened before. And when he removes that from you, it's like you've never sinned. 
And that way, the relationship, the closeness, and the intimacy with God can be completely restored. And that's something that's, that's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to understand because what Satan does is not only does he tempt you and try to get you to sin, but then after you sin, he's sitting there condemning you and persecuting you. He's like, you are the worst person that has ever been. You're like, what a second, you were just telling me it wasn't that bad of a thing a minute ago and then I did it and now you're telling me that like, I'm the worst person ever. And he'll tell you, God will never forgive you. God will never forget this. You will never be able to have a close relationship with God again. You've done too much. You've gone too far. But that's a lie. And that's what Satan does again and again and again. He's a liar. And this is how I know that God forgives the sin, that he forgets the sin, and that relationship with him can be restored. It's because he loved us so much that he wasn't content to allow us to exist far from him. He wasn't able to allow us to live in bondage and in slavery to sin forever separated from him. He came and he laid his life down for us on the cross. It says that he took all of the sin of the world upon himself. And he died on that cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And that three days later, he rose from the grave, having defeated the power of sin and having defeated the power of death itself, so that now you and I, when we come to God and we ask for the forgiveness of our sins, it is all completely removed from us. It says that he that knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, uh, people are talking about, I'm a sinner that's saved by grace. That is true. You were a sinner. You were saved by grace. But your, old, your identity now isn't that you're a sinner. Your identity now is the righteousness of Christ. Yeah. It's like you've never sinned before. And that relationship with God can be completely restored. You can know life like you've never known it before, but like you were always meant to know it. You can know God like you've never even imagined. And he will dwell inside of you. His presence will fill you, guide you, and lead you in everything that you do. And you will live as a son or as a daughter of the living God. You guys stand with me this morning. Let's pray together. God, one of the things that David prayed to you that was so beautiful is, God, would you search my heart and would you know me? And would you reveal any sinful way that's inside of me? And God, we're asking you to come and to do that here in this place this morning. Father, would you reveal to us the sin that's inside of our life? God, would you reveal to us the attacks and the way that Satan is tempting us, the way that he's trying to stand between us and the destiny that you've called us to. And Father, would you strengthen us to resist? Would you give us strength so that we can stand strong in the day of our attack? And Father, we thank you that you have defeated the enemy. The one who tries to stand between us has already been defeated. And so, God, we pray that you would come and that as we resist the temptation of the enemy, that we would be strengthened, that as we turn towards you, that we would be filled with your supernatural power so that we can stand strong. God, we pray that you would bring others alongside of us, 
Joabs who would encourage us, who would hold us accountable, who would give us wise counsel. And Father, we pray for the sin that we've committed or the sin that we continue to struggle with, God, that we would be repentant before you. God, we come before you now confessing the sin, asking for your forgiveness, and asking that you would remove that sin from us, completely forgotten. God, we pray that you would restore the relationship with us. God, we want to know you more fully, more completely than we ever could have imagined. Jesus, would you come and would you work your miraculous, life-saving, transforming salvation power in us? We want to know you. And this morning, if you need God to do something to strengthen you, to resist attack, or if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, or maybe there's been something that's separated you from him, but now you want to come back to him. Every eyes closed, you'd be bold enough to raise your hand as a sign of God, that's me. God, I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need your great mercy in my life. Thank you. Father, for every hand that's raised, Father, you know them. You love them. You made a way for them to live a new life on the cross. So we pray now that you would fill them with your grace and your mercy. God, we pray that you would silence the voice of the enemy that would come to condemn them and accuse them and that instead they would be amazed as waves of your grace and your love and your mercy sweep over them. That they would know that they have the approval of you, the Father. That they would know that their identity isn't as a sinner. Their identity is the righteousness of Christ. They are a son. They are a daughter of the living God. They have been called by you and that you have a destiny that cannot be kept from them. And God, we pray this over our church. We pray this over our city. God, we pray that in our city that there would be many who would come and that they would come before you broken and hurting and stained by sin. But as you reach down and you touch their life, God, that they would rise up pure and holy, strengthened, filled with love and joy and peace and contentment. And God, that you would continue to raise up more sons and daughters. God, that you would build a family in this city that is thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people who have been saved by your miraculous power. People have been recipients of your grace and love. And God, we pray that you would use us. God, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us the words of life, that we would be the Joabs, that we would go out and that we would speak of your great love and mercy. God, that we would be signs that point to you. Father, that you give us divine windows of opportunity. Would you open doors, God, in our workplaces, in our families, in our interactions on the streets, everywhere we go, God. Will we be able to declare the great love and the mercy that we have found in you? Will we be able to uh, be a living testimony of the work and the power of God inside of us and what you can do in a life that is surrendered to you? And God, we pray that we would never be a people who rely on ourselves, but that desperately we would seek you out that desperately we would depend upon you. And as we do that, as we come seeking after you and your wisdom and your power, that that's exactly what we would find. God, as we draw near to you, we know that you draw near to us. Thank you, God, that you are the reward that we find in this life. And fill us, God, with a passion for you and for your name. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.